As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 5 of the Business of Aquaculture Podcast. This episode, we have Jennifer Bushman, Matt Craze, and Sean O'Loughlin. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Lourdes. You're welcome. They are experts who mastered the niche in sharing their knowledge and communications skill set, not only in aquaculture, but also in seafood and in sustainability in general. This episode is for you if you want to gain insights on the topic of education assets in the aquaculture industry. If you listen to Season 5, Episode 4, we have Lou Cooper of Blue Nalu talk to us about cell-cultured seafood. For a one-on-one interview of our panelists today, please refer to Season 1, Episode 5 for Sean O'Loughlin, Season 2, Episode 5 for Matt Craze, and Season 2, Episode 14 for Jennifer Bushman. Welcome to the show again. Thank you. I'd like to keep the show rolling by asking all of you, and maybe Jennifer, you can start first. What's one thing that you learned in the past decade being in this industry? Each and every day, you think you know, there's so much you don't know. I am amazed every day at how much I don't know, even after being in it a decade. So it is a growing, dynamic, exciting place to be, and certainly a level of importance that has changed over the course of the last years as the emphasis on blue foods has been amplified. Thanks. And who do you want to pass the ball to? <laughs> I'll pass it to Sean. One thing that that I am always kind of figuring out, and this is partially because of what I do, you know, my my job is to communicate with, with the industry and, and try to communicate with people outside the industry. But one thing that I learned pretty early on is how much of a disconnect there is between the seafood industry and the consumers or the people outside the industry. And this is where, you know, all of the the myths and the misconceptions about farm seafood versus wild seafood and all this stuff, it, it all sparks from this kind of lack of communication and this disconnect with the seafood industry kind of living in a bubble. And that's kind of something that I learned really early on. And it's the battle that we're all kind of constantly fighting as we try to improve this industry as a whole. It's fascinating that you've been mentioning that because there's always this bridge that you guys do between this disconnect. So over to you, Matt. I guess if, you, if you're looking longer term than the last decade, right, that's the question. I think that it's a rapidly evolving industry. When I think about when I first looked at the salmon industry in about, must have been 2004, 2005, it's dramatically different to what it is today. But mm-hmm. if you think in terms of decades, there's an evolution that's rapidly moving. 
And sometimes it's quite difficult to look at what is happening today and sort of understand the changes in a sense in the last decade because it is moving all the time. So, you know, we see the the implementation of technology digitalization, which is happening across all industries, you know, the the incorporation of RAS technology into the salmon industry and all sorts of things like that. And then all these smaller changes. So it's kind of gauging those. And really, we sort of don't think about it that much. But in a decade, there's huge change. And then there's huge change that's happening now that you'll see in a decade's time. I try and think about it in those parallels, but it's quite difficult as well. If I could touch on that real quick, that's actually super interesting because this is an area where you do see a big difference between the aquaculture industry and the the wildcat fisheries industry is this rapid change because you see a lot of innovation in the and Lourdes, this is something that I spoke about on my episode with you like a year or so ago when I was a guest before, is that the aquaculture industry seems so ready and willing to try out new technologies and implement new innovations and all this stuff. And so you're constantly seeing these change in focus and shifts and, and procedures. And then on the wild caught fisheries side, it, it almost sometimes feels like it's really, really difficult to make some changes and implement some new innovative technologies and things because it is such a more historic type industry where they're hanging on to tradition and things. So it's hard, harder to make those changes. So it's really interesting to see such a rapid change of pace constantly happening on one end of the industry when the, uh, when the other industry kind of fights against that sometimes. So it's, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember there was a guy from Sintef who spoke at a conference about five years ago said, you will not recognize the salmon industry in 10 years from now. When I heard that comment, I was like, that's pretty dramatic, right? And then when you think about it, you've got these massive now RAS smolt farms. And I think the net pen will change. You'll see skirts and technology of more kind of elements of closed containment technology that are incorporated into the net pen. I can sort of see how that that will play out. Um, sorry, I'm probably talking too much. <laughs> no, that was me. I, I threw us all for a tangent. Good question. Yeah. All good, which reminds me, I was just wondering when you guys mentioned about the evolution, I was just thinking in terms of 30 years ago, what was the seafood industry look like? Not to mention, of course, the technological changes that happened. And so maybe, Jennifer, you can give us a little bit more insight in terms of what was it like for you? coming into this industry 30 years ago, even? I mean, I have been at this for almost two decades. And so you can imagine what the differences were. I mean, we came out with a feed model. There were no other alternative feed models to fish meal and fish oil. There wasn't a single one. Now, the cool thing is, is that the market very quickly accelerated and we're in a great moment where we're creating the kind of food system. It is the first time in decades where we can honestly say we're part of the creation of a new food system, even though it's been around for thousands of years. We can set the course specifically in aquaculture in the way that we want. But the problem is, and we all wonder how we got here. We wonder why there's such a negative communication about aquaculture. You could say it's because there were bad practices in the past. You could say that it was because there's this kind of angst between fishers and farmers. There's some political landscape, especially in the U.S., that helped set the course for that. But remember that there is one specific entity that is wrapped in the wild capture fishery space that has spent a billion dollars, $1 billion on the wild is better than farmed. And the 
aquaculture industry at large has not been anything but on the defensive from a communication perspective. And that's the problem is we've never been on the offensive about all these cool things that are happening. Everybody wants a cool story. Everybody wants a cool character profile about some badass that's on the water, that's a farmer doing great work. Like, why aren't we on the offensive in major media to tell these stories, to retrain the way in which writers look for information? It is going to take a concerted effort and marketing and PR and communications can no longer be the L in the P&L from an aquaculture and even a fisheries perspective. It's time to own this great place that we've evolved to. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's fascinating that you mentioned that because this morning I just actually got a forwarded message from one of my colleagues talking about food without the sea, which was an article that appeared in Bloomberg today. And it got me thinking in terms of how can this be going to happen when in fact, Obviously, the earth is composed of the biggest portion of water. And what's your take on this? (laughs) Oh, my gosh, it's not going to happen. Three billion people rely on blue food as their only source of food every day. I mean, I talk about our waters as the largest food bank we have. You know, we have all of these food banks that are giving out land ingredients raised on land, and yet somebody still today can go out and fish for their dinner. It is enormously important. And in the Western world, we've got to give balance to that. We've got to, in the United States, have more aquaculture. We've got to stop relying on wild stocks. We've got to stop what is the larger commercial fishing industry. We've got the year, it is the year of the artisanal fisher and farmer from the UN. We've got to understand that they're the ones feeding their communities and protect those resources for them. When it all goes to hell in a handbasket and the ocean is warm and it's acidified, I can figure out a species of fish or shellfish to raise in it. Anybody that's talking about food without the sea, that's not merging production with protection is living in a vacuum. We will not be vegans. We will not be giving up food from our waters. Actually, what we need to do is figure out how to produce them in a more efficient way. At this point, those waters make up 71% of our planet and 2% of our food. Gentlemen, what's your take on this? I agree, you know, with Jennifer, I think there's a place for everything. I've I've kind of done two studies recently. One was on pelagic fish and the other one was on synthetic biology. So I've been looking at a lot of these alternative plant-based, cell-based companies. A lot of these companies are quite a long ways off from getting their product to market, right, in the first place. And secondly, to get the taste and the price points that the customer wants is quite a ways off. So I think that it's still really something that the seafood industry should have its eye on as, as, you know, yeah, how do you market this and where does it fit in the market? But I think that seafood has very much got a place in the market, both well-managed wild capture fisheries and aquaculture as well. And I've seen just recently with a study that we did um, how protein is in shortage everywhere. The, the, um, countries like Nigeria and Ghana are importing blue whiting right now, which is a smaller fish that traditionally would always go to the fish meal and fish oil industries. And now West African countries are competing for that resource. So I think the, the, the debate should never be about which is the winning protein, but just how to make enough of it. Yeah, there's too many people, right? The whole idea of 
just completely eliminating seafood or eliminating ocean-based foods is completely bogus because there's just too many people that need they need to eat. And I think a lot of these ideas come from, it comes, like you were saying, Jen, it comes back to marketing and it comes back to communications and, and messaging. And the unfortunate thing is the way that our, our lizard human brains are wired is the negative, scary headlines are the sexiest headlines. The stuff that is controversial and gets people riled up, that's what sticks in people's minds. I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago. They found out that I work in the seafood industry. There's one thing that they want to talk to me about, and it's a documentary that came out recently, and I'm not going to name it, but we know what I'm talking about. That's the only thing that people want to talk about, and they want my take on it. And I think those negative and scary headlines that push those types of agendas, they travel a lot farther than our happy stories. So I think what we really need to do in the seafood industry is to really find a way to tell our stories that is appealing to people, right? We found on our podcast that when we do human-based stories where we're having people come on and do their career pathways episodes and they're telling the story of their career from start to finish and where they are now and all of the great things that they've discovered throughout that, those episodes far and away do much better than all of our episodes in terms of listenership because people want to hear those stories. So I think trying to think of different ways that we can start framing the communications and and the stories that we're telling is how we're going to be able to eventually get over on that offensive side. But it's all connected between the way that we've managed the marketing and communications within the aquaculture industry. And this is why we founded Fed by Blue. Mm -hmm. I mean, our team with Andrew Zimmerman and with David E. Kelly Productions, you have the most I say you've got to do it in in a way that really sets a different stage for Hollywood. Hollywood has changed consumptive behavior. It has gained more acceptance for the LGBTQ community. It has stopped people from smoking. Like we have seen character profiles in stories, in shows that we admire, change behavior because we want to be like those people. We want to do, we want to model their behavior. And so Fed by Blue was founded as a communication strategy for that. And the series is filming right now. We are filming right now on the ground in anticipation of showing the first episode at South by Southwest in March. So Hope in the Water is the name of the series and 13-time Emmy award-winning producer, writer, director, David E. Kelly of The Undoing, Boston Legal, Ally McBeal etc. is the one that is production company is producing it. We're going to get there by hook or by crook. And what we need is more support within the industry, new companies, these technologies, these great people that are doing the work. Because what David says is you can't tell a topical story, you tell a character story. And that's what changes behavior. 100%. Exciting times, exciting times. Can't wait to watch that I guess it's a documentary, so it would be uh, a big buzz. It's a four by 60. It's going to be on a major streaming entity, and it's four episodes, 60 minutes, with hopefully more to come. Oh, exciting times, exciting times, which leads me to my next question. If there's one thing that you wish you've done when you first started, what would that be? I'm still relatively new in my seafood career. I've been, I've been in the industry just under a decade so my experiences are still fairly fresh and I haven't seen a lot of the changes that have happened over the last, th- I mean, you were talking about 30 years ago, what was the industry like? I was in preschool. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, I, right. I, I, I'm still pretty young, but I think I went into it with a lot of misconceptions. Even after studying aquaculture and fishery tech in college, I didn't have an understanding of the 
industry as a whole. And my everything that I did was production based. And so I wish I had kind of allowed myself to open up a little bit more to how the industry works as a whole instead of just focusing on like, okay, this is my job and this is what I'm going to do. Because it took me a few years to really get a grasp on what's going on bigger picture. And and that's something that I wish I had done personally, but that's, you know, that's where I'm at right now. When I first came into the industry, we had founded a brand called Verlasso Salmon. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty groundbreaking. It was the first ever ocean-raised fish to get a yellow. I mean, it changed the way in which assessments were done. This was before ASC, all of that. There were a lot of like things that really pushed the envelope to build an actual branded salmon. And I think that it, it did a lot to push forward the important practices that were happening, changes that needed to happen in Chile. But the regret that I have, the thing that I wish that I would have done was that I came up with this idea to host at the University of California, Davis, which actually hosts a lot of different, whether it's the wine industry or the beer industry, there are a lot of the International Olive Oil Consortium are housed there specifically to bring industry together to be able to create solutions for the future. And it was something that I wanted to do with Verlasso. We really never made the time. And I still think that what we need is this alignment. We need fishers to come together to understand that they don't have to be threatened by aquaculture. We need to have these different parts of the sort of blue food equation to be in the same room together. And we're we're not, not even at Sina. We're always kind of looking at it as an us against them. And in a space like that, it also brings in people out of industry and like larger food systems thinking, because I'm still having conversations in large formats where in large impactful forums that they don't even know anything about blue food and they think we're just going to do it on plant-based and cultivated meat. Um, as a future system. So I wish I would have done that. Not too late. <laughs> not too late. And I agree. Nothing else I've, to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're not most, busy at all, right? <laughs> I guess I've had the most time to think of my answer now, but it's actually a bit of a non-answer in a sense. I've researched commodities forever. It was my first job out of school. I've done mining and energy and soft commodities and agriculture. And I guess the only regret is that I didn't start sooner unpicking the aquaculture industry, because it's kind of amorphous. It's not very transparent. There's production centers in kind of quite all, you know, scattered around the world. It's quite disparate in a way. You can go to Norway and find a bunch of data about salmon. But when you start to look into things like shrimp and tilapia, it's incredibly amorphous and vague, and and it's difficult to find statistics. I don't think I could have gone about it in any other way except by just continually learning and peeling away the kind of layers of, I guess, just the difficulty of finding information. And I don't think it could have been done in any other way. Right now, I feel like I can have an intelligent conversation about some of these species, but it's a continual learning process. And I think it's quite unique in a sense among food markets in being quite poorly understood. But because because there is a lack of data and statistics and understanding. So, yeah, just, I guess, not having started sooner. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you very much for your time today. My biggest takeaway from our episode today with this panel was when you guys were talking about what came to my mind was two S, strength and stretch. Strength in still being able to be one community so we can have one voice 
and then stretch in being more proactive in our communications. Maybe I'll ask the three of you how they can get in touch with you. For me, everyone should follow at Fed by Blue. It's one of the most important things that I feel like I'm working on at this point. And you'll be able to track along with some of these updates that I've given you. And so watch at Fed by Blue or fedbyblue.org. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, I am from the Global Seafood Alliance, but my podcast is Aquademia. And you can contact us by going to globalseafood.org slash podcast. We have a contact form right there, or you can find my email directly on that website. Yeah, Lords, I do different research projects and we do research papers with in conjunction with Undercurrent News, which is pretty much the most read seafood industry website globally, I guess. So you'll find some stuff there. And I, and I do podcasts as well with interviews with Undercurrents. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't post enough. I should post more and I'm planning to. But I'm also Matt at SphericResearch.com. Well, thank you again. And to our subscribers, please do leave a review of the podcast. Know that you help build a home in the Philippines via B1G1.com when you listen to our episodes. Thank you again to all of you. And we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues, and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.